Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing very well. This is Jeffrey Tucker. He is the editorial vice president of the Ludwig von Mises Institute, yet another think tank that feels it needs political titles for its uh, executives. Uh, he espouses the Austrian School of Economics, uh, which is uh, uh, economics with Lederhosen and singing in Julie Andrews. Uh, he is the current webmaster for the Institute's website, Mises.org, which I highly, highly recommend. Uh, he's also an adjunct scholar with the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, and is an Acton University faculty member. That would be Hugh Acton from uh, Atlas Shrugged, if I remember rightly. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, I really don't want anyone to miss the uh, the martini glass uh, just behind Jeffrey. When we first signed on, I did remind him that it was a video, so he took it from upside down off his head and has now placed it in a more civilized. But but it is almost 3 p.m. Uh, in the uh, in the offices of Mises, so uh, I feel that you're starting late uh, today based upon what I've heard. So thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, I really appreciate it. Sure. It's wonderful to be here, Stefan. It's a real pleasure. Now, uh, we were just talking a little bit before the show. Uh, I've interviewed a number of other uh, prominent libertarian and anarchic thinkers, uh, Steph Kinsella, uh, about about the topic of, of parenting and um, uh, David Friedman and so on. Uh, Steph Kinsella's unique approach was simply to threaten taught retribution against his children should they be disobedient, which I thought was, um, well, uh, it was unique. Uh, and uh, I think uh, David Friedman uh, simply threatened to keep taking them on Dungeons and Dragons expeditions out to the wilds if they weren't obedient. But I really think that that the idea of the non-initiation of force and uh, to some degree property rights, I think has an influence on on people's parenting. And if you could just tell me a little bit about your kids uh, and if you think that it's had any effect on uh, on your parenting style. Yeah, I would say the overall orientation towards favoring liberty as opposed to power has had some influence. It's taken me a while to think through this, but, you know, I look at other parents and I, you know, a common parenting error is that um, people imagine that they're creating their children. Like the, the child is born and they figure, well, it's, it's just a biological creature. Now I have to put my stamp on this kid, you know. And they have always every parent carries around with them in their head a sense of like, what should my, what is my ideal ch- kid? And they try to turn them into that. Unfortunately, that means oftentimes fighting against what the kid wants to be. And uh, so I, I think that a concern for liberty in general should make parents uh, more deferential to what the child is and is, is, I would say, use the word created to be. You know, everybody's an individual. They have particular aptitudes and interests and talents. Now, that's not to say that you can't give them anything at all. You give them a framework of, of values uh, and uh, uh, and encourage them in, in what they're good at. And sometimes if they're not a good at something, you kind of put a lot of pressure on them to show show them that they can work hard and become a good, so good at something that, um, that doesn't come natural to them or whatever. But nonetheless, always remember that uh, this child is born into the world to be something special and unique, and that will ultimately be a matter of self-discovery on the child's part. And it's, and it's not anything that the parent can make happen. You know, I, when I read about uh, the, the history of child raising, you, you can find some very grim stories. Mm. For example, the, the Puritans in the colonial period, I mean, there must have been the most, we have a lot of documentation about how they raised their children. And it's absolutely grim. I mean, I don't know how anybody, it must have been a generation of, uh, of several generations of, of nutcases, uh, given their parenting, uh, styles. I mean, they would roll them in, in balls and kick them around the floor until they complied with their dictates and things like this. It's very common. 
Yeah, when you when you start to dig into the uh, sorry, when you start to dig into the history of childhood and a website I recommend for that is psychohistory.com, you can find some truly chilling examples of the degree to which early childhood experiences have effects on later political thoughts. I mean, to take a egregious example, uh, there was this practice when Hitler was a child called swaddling or binding, where they didn't have time to deal with their infants. So they basically would just swaddle them, sometimes for hours or days at a time, hang them on hooks uh, to keep them out of the way. And uh, they would actually get get lice and other sorts of vermin in there. And so when, when Hitler would rail against the Jews as a form of lice, it would have a visceral and physical reaction among the Germans. I mean, a lot of his metaphors were taken from early childhood experience, the ranting, screaming father and all this sort of stuff. So this kind of collective insanity is hard to understand. I know Rand and, and Peikoff in Ominous Parallels tried to explain it from a purely philosophical standpoint, which I think has great value. But I think the missing piece a lot of time is to look at early childhood experiences and see the degree to which it has a massive effect on people's later political attitudes. One thing I think a parent, parents can, can learn to do is to remember they're not infallible. You know, the parental, parental child relationship is a potentially a dangerous one in the sense that you have a great deal of power over another human being. And that's, that's usually not good for people actually have uh, that kind of power over another. So we have to think of it as a sense of responsibility. I never have any problem in apologizing to my, ch- to my children when, I, when I've um, lost my temper or made a bad decision or given bad advice or ignored them or whatever. You say, look, I'm, I'm really very sorry that was wrong. I'm, I'm fallible and it's, uh, I shouldn't have done that. You know, there's nothing, nothing at all wrong with apologizing and, and, and admitting your, your problems. I, I don't, and the other thing is, as soon as possible, um, I do think it's important to treat your children uh, not so much like children, but almost like colleagues in a sense. You know, you, you have to respect their, their sense of personhood and, uh, and uh, talk to them uh, as, they're, as if they're mature people in order to make them mature p- properly. Uh, I like the idea of having children sort of be part of an adult world and not, you know, one of the terrible things about uh, public school, I mean, it's, it's the, public school is like, like a prison-like situation where you have these, um, you have the, the wardens and their only colleagues are, are people of their own age. So they never get examples of, of people who are a little bit older and a little bit younger, so they don't learn compassion for for young people and they don't learn uh, maturity from older people and they, and they think of adults as just being a bunch of dictators i mean this is this is what happens in the public school setting so you get them out of that setting and get them mixing more with older kids younger kids people of all ages adults of all ages and sure enough you know if you do that uh, the, the child can both preserve onto the beautiful aspects of childhood longer and then also interact with adults in a more responsible uh, way uh, public schools have been, I think, a disaster for children's socialization generally. Well, I think that's, I think that's very true. Um, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you that treating your children uh, as responsible and mature as soon as – it really struck me. My, my daughter is uh, 20, 27 months, so she's still uh, knee-high to a grasshopper. But, but even, even as early as 18 or 19 months, she began to make decisions for herself that I didn't agree with, but she was right about. So, for instance, could she jump – from the couch to the carpet. Well, of course, I'm so used as a parent, and I'm a full-time parent for the most part, I'm so used as a parent to keeping her safe that that was very much like, hey, you you want to jump out of an airplane? Good luck with that parachute. I just didn't, I really had a tough time letting her do it, but I really had to trust her judgment, and she's she's been right. Uh, she's been right. So uh, deferring to your child's judgment can occur as early as a year and a half or, or a little bit older, and that stuff is, is really interesting, the degree to which it's more of a dance and less of a dictator. 
Yeah, I th- that's a good way to put it, more of a dance and less of a dictatorship. Right? And and also you can preserve this relationship with your children longer as they get older. You know, as, the, as children reach the teenage, they start to... Um, pull away from the parents and that's that's normal and that's natural and we have to expect that and anticipate that but but you can you can keep your ties there longer if they can look back at a childhood in which they were respected even as the earliest ages you know if they were treated um, as a person of dignity uh, with a volition that should be respected and deferred to as as often as possible that's not to say they should be spoiled I mean there, there's an opposite error here I think but but nonetheless if you can think of them as a person just like you. That's not always easy. For some reason, parents have sometimes have a great difficulty with this. I, I do think the core error is that parents are under the impression that they are creating uh, a child in the same way that a central planner believes that he's he or she is creating a, an economy. You know, it's crazy. Uh, people are too complex for that. You can't mold people like that. I mean, any more than you can design a centrally planned an economy, which is a very, very enormously complex thing. The individual person is enormously complex. Parents sometimes forget that it's not only about what the child does. Um, there's a lot going on in a child that you never see, and it's all up here. And you can't see that. It's invisible. And the child always exercises total control over what goes on in their mind. You can kind of control maybe what their hands and their feet do or what, where they're walking and even to some extent what they're saying. But, but the real activity of a child's life is all invisible to you and it's all up here. We have to remember that and defer to that and remember that we can't control that, nor should we try. And you certainly can't get access to one's, uh, another person's soul through authority through uh, through any sort of top-down hierarchy you can get access to their physical compliance or whatever but you can't get access to who another human being is except through curiosity and persistence and respect uh, and that's another thing i mean we very much as parents we want our children to do certain things sometimes and remembering that as you say we're not always right that they actually may have better ideas than than we do in the moment uh, is is a humbling a humbling experience i think that people who've come from an entrepreneurial background who recognize that the child is just another kind of customer and you wouldn't order your customers around in business uh, and you wouldn't order your children around uh, in the family i think those two things work work really well i i try to think of them as co-workers um you know i have colleagues here at the mises institute and uh, i would never go into another person's office and and uh, bite their head off or denounce them or try to humiliate them or threaten them with some sort of severe punishment or anything like that. I mean, you don't want to do that. You will pay the price later. I mean, the person will still be suffering from that from that treatment six months, a year later. So anything you do today is going to redound to you for years in advance. And, and so I don't treat my colleagues like that at the Mises Institute. Um, so why, why would I treat my children that way? Yeah, and it's not like your work colleagues are going to be holding your hand on your deathbed or anything. I mean, we, we should treat our children with even greater respect as our spouses and our friends, even than work colleagues, because, you know, work colleagues to some degree come and go and there's a sort of calculation of mutual utility, although there can be friendship as well. But the real relationships in our lives are the ones where we should lay the most gold down, I think. And I think sometimes people forget that you often see people treating strangers or waiters, waiters of all people. You see, you see people treating waiters better than those who are close to them, which I just find a complete inversal of values. Well, I like what you said about um, how you want to as- aspire to have your children respect you, not just fear you. 
Um, I remember there's a scene in Godfather. I think it's Godfather Three. You know, <laughs> so that's your Michael's, next template for my parenting. Right, right, from right. parenting ideals to Godfather Three. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think Michael's over over the grave of the, uh, the the casket of his father, and he's crying, and he says uh, something like, uh, "How come? How come you were so respected, and I'm merely feared?" You know, and I don't know. That was a poignant moment for me because I thought, yeah, that's, we should aspire to be respected and not just feared. Fear is grim. Fear and power are somehow related, aren't they? Well, sure. And what fear and power do is they will get you an immediate effect, but at the cost of your long-term happiness. I mean, it's as simple as if I want a car, I can either sort of work to buy it over months or years, or I can just go and steal it. So, so breaking the moral code will get you the immediate results that you want. Uh, and uh, like people who are, you know, you socialize the healthcare system and the people who don't have insurance who are sick are going to get a lot of benefits in that moment. But it's at the cost, of course, of the long-term happiness. And keeping your eye on the long-term uh, is, is the real trick, I think, of trying to live a virtuous life because it's, it's balanced to some degree. You know, uh, Stefan, another thing, I, I this is just a quirk of mine, but I, I always try to uh, surprise my uh, children and uh, and. Um, kind of uh, go contrary to their expectations of what parents should be. So I've been encouraging, for example, I have a, a daughter who's now 16 and who actually happens to be in college at Auburn University, but she... Um I've been encouraging her for years to start smoking, and uh, she just doesn't want to smoke. And it's kind of been this on, ongoing thing, you know. And Are you a smoker yourself? Uh, I used to be. I, and I'm a strong believer that if you're going to smoke, you need to do it when you're young because there's going to come a time mm. when uh, you can't smoke anymore. Um, uh, because, you know, like, I can't smoke indoors here at the office. It's hard on the lungs. As you get older, you can't handle it as much, you know. But the, the, when you're young, your lungs are fresh. You're, you're full of energy. You're outdoors a lot. You've got, your, you've got cool things to do. It's the time to smoke. It's the time to drink. So I'm always encouraging her to do these things, and she kind of resists me. So I'm always buying her gifts like cigarette holders. <laughs> Hopefully it's those long red ones that go out about a foot and a half or whatever, right? <laughs> so I'll buy her a cigarette holder. She, she laughs about it and shows it to her friends, and people ask me, how can, you, how can you encourage your daughter to smoke? What do you think is so good about smoking out? My answer is simple. It's cool. <laughs> That's it. It's just very cool. <laughs> so... Um, my father anyway, uh, smoked. So I'm not a conventional parent, I guess you could say. My uh, my father smoked a pipe for some years, and uh, then he ended up with this complete long ass like Hobbit pipe, you know, that just went out like three feet. And my mom asked him why. He had a pipe that was so long, and he said, "Well, my my doctor asked me to stay away from tobacco." So of course that was his <laughs> <the> solution. <laughs> That's now, very funny. So, uh, you, how many kids do you have? I have four. You have four kids? Wow. And uh, this was before the Catholic conversion, of course, right? It must be. Because um, afterwards, I think they, they attempt to get you to recharge the ranks. That's my, my understanding as a, as a layperson. Uh, and what, what are their age ranges? Uh, well, the, the oldest one is 16, and uh, the other one just turned um, 9. I guess now she just turned 8, yeah. So they all they all play piano, they all play violin. Um, I encourage computer use, uh, encourage them to learn how to type, uh, creativity as much as, as, as possible. And, um, and as I say, pursuing whatever it is that interests you and doing an excellent job in whatever you do. I'd say that's my general parenting principles. It's not complicated. Uh, and uh, try to keep, keep peace and, and, and happiness in the home uh, as much as possible. That's, that's the goal. And, and what, what happens after, after this? I don't know. Stephanie, I mean, you're, 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 you said you have a little girl, right? And she's uh, two years old. 
Just over, yeah. Yeah, and at some point, you know, she's she's going to become something very different from what you might have anticipated. And um, I think, uh, you know, I'm preparing myself for that. I think every parent does. We, do, we just have to recognize that our children are going to make their own choices, you know. It could be a different religious choice. It could be uh, a different musical choices, aesthetic choices, uh, choices of who their friends are, who they believe they are, where they came from. You know, that's that's the way people are made. They're all made as individuals. And I think it's a wonderful thing to bring children into the world, and then we have to let them go again. Now, when it came to educating your children uh, about um, conclusions that you've come to that are somewhat out of the mainstream uh, around economics in the state, uh, how did you how did you approach that when they sort of come home and say, you know, well, Daddy, it's very, very important for you to go and vote because we need to maintain our freedoms. Yeah, what, uh, you get a facial tick and just start drinking again? or, or well, you No, think it's that? funny. I've, I've never, ever set out to turn my children into libertarians. I never wanted to do that. I, I've heard stories about people reading human action when they're nine or whatever. I just find that whole thing just a little bit ridiculous. And so I actually set out to more or less hide my political views from my, from my, from my children because I really believe that they should think for themselves and I, I really but it turns out to be impossible and uh, my my oldest who's is very glib and smart she she teases me about it she says yeah dad you were really good at uh, hiding your politics from me you know i mean she she was she was a devoted anarchist by the time she was 11 you know so it's very funny but they ask me what my politics are uh what, what my views on politics are i just tell them i would tell them what i tell everybody else my view is that you shouldn't kill and you shouldn't steal and uh i don't think uh, anybody should do that including these people who call themselves the state so yeah, that's that's the summary of it and I, I don't see what's so objectionable about that or, or even radical really oh people uh, people always agree in principle it's so it's the application of that principle that they have a trouble they have trouble with right i mean I, yes i agree i should lose 10 pounds on principle but putting down the snickers bar is a is a whole other thing so but you know my children have also absorbed uh, my political views and so i should say they know what they are because first of all they you know my my uh, middle girl uh, margot's red bourbon for breakfast cover to cover which is just funny uh, to me uh, that she that's sorry that, for those who don't that know part. that's uh, that's um, your your book that you've come out it's it's out as an right. ebook as well as a, a print book is sure right? sure sure yeah ebook and print and uh, haven't done audio yet but uh, and i've got another one coming out soon it's called uh, it's a jetsons world i'm, I'm very excited about this, but I think it's an even better book. But a lot of the stories in Bourbon for Breakfast actually take place in the home because I was busy discovering all the ways in which the state has sort of ruined everything around around the household. Like, why, why aren't the toilets working? Uh, how come I, I re vaguely recall very hot water? What, what happened to the hot water in my house? What, how, you know, how come my showers aren't as uh, get, getting as much water coming down out of these things as they used to? So I would do things like experiments, and I would take uh, buckets and, and hold them under the shower, you know, and turn on the shower head and, and test to see how many gallons per minute I was getting, comparing that to EPA regulations and then drilling out the, the shower head and seeing how that affected things and comparing it to the old standards and, and write stories about this. Now, government regulations are, are running our households in ways we don't entirely understand. And, um, you know, I take them on experiments with me. Like, I remember being very curious about 
whether or not it was okay to steal from an olive bar at the grocery store. Now, this is the, you're in the grocery store, they've got olives sitting out there, they still look so delicious, it's so easy to just walk up and put one in your mouth, and yet is that theft? And so I began to get curious about this. Before I asked the management about this, I had my children st- <laughs> stake out the olive bar in the store, and we, we, and we hid behind like the bread counter, the donut counter, one was over here behind the wine, and we watched from all four directions, all making careful notes to see how many people were stealing from the olive bar. And we did this empirical test like this. And so we came up with numbers and ran them and, you know, all this kind of thing. And after we did that, that took a good afternoon. It was lots of fun, lots of fun. I went to the management and started and asked the store management, is it okay? Here's what we found, the number of people that are taking olives out of the olive bar. Uh, what do you think about this? And I got Four different answers. I mean, like the, the, the head of the bakery said, oh, listen, that's just outright theft. Anybody who do that is just criminal. The manager of the wine department said, it's, I think it's fantastic. I, when people take from the olive bar, that means that they're going to buy more, you know. So different people had different attitudes, and most of people were just laughing about it. I mean, it seemed to be a, a vague tolerance, actually, towards uh, free samples, basically, is what it came to. Not stealing, really, it turns out, but more like free samples. But anyway, I take my children on little experiments like that, and it's fun. And it's fun. I think uh, I was just it, the image struck me uh, if you've ever seen the film The Matrix that when you were talking about this sort of web of regulations that we live in that that interfere between us and sort of basic tangible reality like how much water can we have coming out of our shower it, it, a gross example is I think here in Canada they reduced the amount of of water that you could flush in your toilet which as far as I understand it simply means everything becomes a double flush which I think is actually wasting more water but uh, it just sort of struck me that this web of regulations that surround us it's like um uh, it's like the the hair netting around some some guy who's making your fast food. Uh, it, it changes the shape of his hair in a way that you know you wouldn't know what it looks like otherwise. And it is fascinating to imagine what the world would look like without this just tight, almost invisible, faint mesh of regulations that controls and regulates everything about uh, our existence. And that's that's what the book is focused on. Is that right? Yeah, that's the, that's the focus on, on issue after issue. I mean, uh, uh, things like, well, why don't our dishwashers work as well? Why do our clothes washers not work as well? What, ha- what, why is our water in our houses not as hot as it used to be? And I found, you know, a government regulation on every one of these things. I mean, slowly, uh, by piecemeal, little by little, they're degrading the quality of our life and unraveling all the things we identify with civilization. Just this morning, I was researching about a subject of the phosphorus in dishwashers dishwasher detergents, and I don't know if you know about this subject. It's, it's remarkable. I mean, phosphorus was the first uh, chemical uh, uh, compound discovered since, uh, chemical element discovered since the ancient world and was discovered in the in the 17th century. And one of the things it's used for is to get g- dishes unbelievably clean, and uh, it's always been in dishwasher detergent. Within the last 12 months, it's been phased out of dishwasher detergent. And over the last six months, the Consumers Report says... Uh, just a flood of complaints about how the dishwashers aren't working anymore. Well, it's not the dishwashers, it's a stupid detergent. Totally a result of government regulations, creeping a little bit of time. Starts with a lobbying organization, implemented in one state, falls, goes to another. There's a kind of a rush of regulations. 17 states did it, then the federal government gets interested in, in, in the subject. And even before the regulation takes place, uh, uh, detergent manufacturers eliminated the phosphorus from the soaps, and now our, our dishes are full of grit and grime. But who knows this? You know, I mean, you're, you're, you're at home, you, you run your dishwasher through, through one time, and you pick up the thing and you go, God, I just bought this dishwasher. This, this glass looks like hell, you know, and you blame the company. 
and then you run it twice or you wash it by hand, that's causing probably a lot more pollution than was designed to be eliminated, right? But that's hidden, whereas the phosphorus is visible. And that's, of course, the huge problem with the state is it it completely reverses the the great challenge of economics, of course, is always to see what is invisible rather than what is obvious, right? So, you know, you, you, you minimum wage laws, uh, as we talked about in the last show, minimum wage laws, some people are going to be happy because they get more money and they'll be like, yay, good for us. And, uh, but all the people who don't get a job uh, or who lose their job uh, will not be aware of it or will only be vaguely aware of it. And therefore, you always get this concentrated group who are always baying for the expansion of state power because the people who are losing out are, are they're dispersed, they're not aware of what's going on. And this is one of the ways in which, so this, you know, uh, people just wash it twice, but that's not noticeable because that doesn't show up. Whereas, you know, phosphorus, you can measure it in the, in the water table or whatever. So that's more visible. And that's the great tragedy is, is how much of this invisible stuff we don't see uh, and all of these regulations and their unintended consequences mostly just vanish in people's minds. Yeah, that's right. And I'm very curious about these subjects. And I think we all should be. You know, if you find something that doesn't really work very well in your home, look it up. Look up the Federal federal Register and find out if there's a government regulation that's actually controlling this. And you know, chances are there are. When I was, uh, sorry, when I was younger, um, I used to get, uh, when I first started arguing uh, free markets and so on, I used to constantly get, you know, market failure. It's always you hear market failure. And uh, I used to go and, and look this stuff up and, and uh, always you'd find that there'd be some law, some rule, some regulation, some statute, some whatever, some union or something that prevented it from uh, from working or uh, prevented the market from satisfying whatever need there was. Or somebody who had, you know, like one guy uh, living in a, a tiny town wants a multiplex uh, theater. And he calls it market failure when, you know, when the, uh, uh, the movie makers or the movie, uh, uh, the, the movie guys don't want to come and build a big multiplex in his town. And so uh, now I just say market failure, uh, regulation or lack of demand. Uh, I don't even bother going to look it up anymore because you've, once you've looked up the same story a hundred times, it's the same story. You don't need to, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's right. Uh, market fa- I'm going to move this screen just a little bit if you don't mind. Let me just pull this over. There we go. That way I can look at you and look at the camera at the same time. Um, no, I mean, this, this whole myth of market failure, I mean, what, what it really comes down to is the economists wanting some result that's not, not being achieved, uh, you know, because people don't want that result or regulation. I mean, that's an excellent summary of what's going on. Minimum wage. <laughs> a friend of mine, sorry, a friend of mine who would argue this with me, uh, he went to, we were in a bar, a disco one night when I was in my teens and uh, he went to go and ask a, a woman to, uh, to, to go out with him or to go dance with him or whatever. And, uh, he came back, uh, crestfallen because she had uh, rejected him. And I said, of course, oh dear, market failure. Um, <laughs> we need a, we need a law. We need, we need a regulation to even this out a little bit. Anyway, sorry. Go on. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. Everybody looks to the state for, for, to, to make all dreams come true. But of course, it only brings about, uh, terrible nightmares. And, uh, the, the tragedy of modern regulations, you know, it's, it's at least in the Soviet system, they, they announced, we will make the perfect society, you know. But in, uh, in the United, United States, we just get these little piecemeal, uh, dictates, you know, that are kind of wrecking our lives in ways we, we don't entirely understand. I mean, it's, it's, it's grim and it's, it's brutal and it's, it's truly unraveling things. Things like hot water at home. I'm going to change this back the way it was. I think it worked better. I don't know if that's making it look any different for you, but, um, things like hot water in our homes. 
this is absolutely essential to getting our bodies clean, our clothes clean, our you know this is just a triumph of civilization that we had we have hot water running in our houses, and um, now with thanks to government regulations, these hot water heaters are shipped with a default temperature of like 110, which isn't nearly high enough to get things clean. I mean that's high enough to breed uh, terrible bacteria and germs, but it's not high enough to clean things and or um, uh, really run a household well. So you have to go into the hot water uh, heater and and change the setting if you're gonna if you're gonna make any progress uh, at your home. But how many people know that? I mean, very few. If you've read my book, you know it. But I mean, not not many people know how to do this. So uh, the, and and their lives are being degraded by the day. And they blame they, they blame the market, right? Because they say, oh, the dishwashers or the soap manufacturers or there's, you know, always you end up with this middleman called the market that's the whipping boy for everybody's dissatisfactions. Though when you trace it back, it's always to some initiation of force on the state side. Yeah, yeah, almost, yeah, almost in every every single case. That's true. Uh, we we need to somehow publicize this a little bit more. We talked last time you and I visited, and I'm, by the way, I've really enjoyed our conversations. I mean, it's funny. I, you're kind of a star in my mind. I've been watching your videos for I don't know how you know a couple of years or something. We've so you know the room, right? Them. Well, the room, yeah, the room is great. But you have this you have this talent that that I don't have. It's there's a German word for it: the ability to speak in paragraphs. You know, it comes with like an extreme high level of intelligence. I mean, that's very impressive. You've got that. I enjoy watching you, and I, I like the way you've your, your language, though you've, you're such a careful thinker and a rigorous thinker. Thank you. Um, and I like the little the universe that you've put together for for your message, just single-handedly. I mean, with no institutional support or anything, it's magnificent. And um, in any case, what I wanted to say was the last time we visited, we talked about the digital universe as being a kind of frontier of freedom for now. I mean, for the most part. And uh, you can observe how much sort of better the digital world works than the real world and the physical world. And the, the main reason, I think, the difference between the two is that one is, by and large, the absence of government regulations, and the other is just o overwhelmed with this, as you call this netting or this, this, this web of government regulations that's controlling everything. And we have this state. I think you made one wonderful video about about the state and treating it as just as gigantic anachronism that's not going to last forever. And boy, isn't that true? I mean, the state is still operating today as if it's the 1930s you know it's like it's like it's like nothing's really changed for these people it's just this they you know they they regulate they push us around like 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 some some old time uh, feudal order or something like that meanwhile the rest of the world insofar as we're free to do so has moved on to create in effect a completely separate universe that lives in the cloud yeah, I, th I think that's I think that's right. I, I had another thought after we talked yesterday about um, how a state, uh, to me, fundamentally, it's a state of mind. I mean, the, the state is first; it's a mental construct, which then has manifestations in the in the real world, and it comes out of education and it comes out of parenting and other kinds of things. But the one thing that is required, really, for a country to maintain itself is a common mythology. Uh, and one thing that the internet does, and it, it has struck me as very similar to. Uh, you know, what the Gutenberg Press did in the 15th and 16th centuries when Martin Luther was able to translate the Bible into the vernacular from, from the ancient Greek and Latin and then spread it around Christendom. Of course, there was quite a lot of convulsions and religious warfare as people wrestled for control over 
uh, scripture. And of course, because scripture was so bound into the nature of the state, anybody who got hold of the state got to impress their version of religion on everyone else. So there was a lot of war around that, which is, I think, why they eventually had to pry these two apart because they together that the, you can have them together if there's a uniformity. But once there's individuality, once there's individual conscience with regards to to philosophy or religion, then you can't have a unified nation state because uh, there's too much individuality. And one of the things that is, I think, occurring, people are talking a lot about the the growing lack of civility uh, and the growing extremity or extremities within U.S. politics. And it's not just U.S. politics; it's it's also occurring in Europe. And I think the internet has a huge amount to do with that. I mean, when you had when I was growing up, there were three, but functionally two television stations, uh, which were all licensed by the state. So you got the same message over and over, reinforced, reinforced. And things did change, but it was so slow and so on. Like it would take eight years of disasters in Vietnam for Walter Cronkite to go, hmm, you know, maybe this isn't so good. Whereas now, I mean, even before the war starts, you have protests against it and many divergent. Uh, you, where on earth could you have found in the Second World War pictures of German civilian casualties? Uh, whereas, of course, you can go to Al Jazeera, you can go to any website that, that deals with this sort of stuff and see all of that stuff now. I think there's been uh, such an explosion of multifaceted approaches to information that the very concept of a mythological unified country, I think, is breaking up. Now, I think we we hopefully want to make sure that it breaks up in a way that is more towards individuality and less towards sort of warring tribes of Mohawk guys on motorcycles. But I think that that also is an effect that technology has. But Stephanie, you know, the more contact we have with other people, the more we get along with them. I, I mean, essentially, I think human conflict is is enhanced by by uh, a lack of contact with people. I mean, the more we know about people, the more... I mean, I can, I can tell you stories here in Auburn, you know, uh, there are schools in town that say no Catholics allowed. And, uh, you know, I'll go in there and say, gosh, you know, I really like maybe to consider your school, but, I, but I'm Catholic. And they'll say, oh, well, we've really liberalized that position. You know, we're, we're, well, if we're you trying ask, to change okay. That. If you stand yeah, up by the yeah. sign, okay. But if you ask, yeah. you're in, yeah. right? So, I mean, just the fact that you can go to them and say, look, I'm, I'm a Catholic and a human being, they back down. You know, and I think it's it's true. I mean, that model is expanded all over the world. The more contact we're having with more different different kinds of people, the more we're, we're tolerant. I mean, it's a it's a matter of trade. I mean, trade breeds a kind of a social peace, and uh, the opportunities for working together with people all over the world now are just exploding. I mean, like they've never happened anywhere else in all of human history. Um, I had a we, we have a Mises Academy, which is a kind of online university, and one of the modules was was broken. And nowadays, as you know, tech tech work is so specialized. I mean, you, there's no such thing as a oh, I'm a a, a a a computer guy. There's no such thing. I mean, you have specialization. So I needed to get this darn thing fixed. I didn't know who was going to fix it. So I blogged about it, put it up on our Facebook. I said, you know, we've got this certain module in in um, in our Moodle platform that's running on a Linux server that needs to be needs to be fixed, and nobody can seem to fix it. Anybody can help. And I got a, an email from a guy whose name I can't remember. Somebody like Maui. Tui, I can't even pronounce the name. And he said, I can fix it. I said, great. Well, I had to leave the office at that time. So I was going home. I gave him my Skype number. Uh, he called me on my Skype. I pulled over on the side of the road. And uh, I was looking at this man uh, who's, uh, who's a, a 
his complexion was as dark as anything I'd ever seen in my life, with the strangest accent I'd ever seen in my life. And I said, hello, it's great to see you. And uh, he said, where are you? I said, well, I'm in my car. And he said, well, I'm in my apartment. He showed me around his apartment with his Skype thing, you know, and it looked like like a hut somewhere. I said, where are you? Where are you? He said, well, I'm in Australia. I said, in Sydney? He goes, oh, I'm not nowhere near a big city. I'm out here in the, the far country. I thought, I can't believe this is happening. Well, I said, look, you think you can fix that plug-in? You go for it. And I gave him some logins. Well, next morning I got up, I had a message that it has all been fixed. Hey, Stefan, this all happened in a matter of hours. I never knew this guy. How would I have known? And yet he can work for me. And we could cooperate. And and I tell you, I call him from time to time, check in, see how he's doing. We're friends now. You know, it's, it's, you know, like in digital friends, you know. And, and my webmaster is in Shanghai. We've got the head of the Mises Academy in, in, in Thailand. Uh, um, I mean, the, it's great for, human cooperation and just a global sense of peace that people are coming together this way. And I don't know what the nation state has to do with this. I mean, absolutely nothing. I mean, the nation state is an absurdity. It's, as you say, it's an anachronism that predates the technological revolution. I don't see how it can survive like this. I mean, I, I feel a much stronger community with the global readers of Mises' work. Mm, than yeah. I do, you know, with uh, some people who live in my own subdivision, you know. So, I I mean, this is the world we're entering into and, and the kind of world that your daughter's being raised in. You know, how, what kind of attachment are these people going to have to the nation state? And when some bonehead politician gets up there waving the flag and talking about our wonderful wars or whatever and how how America has to stand up for our, our country, you know, you just kind of look at it and go, well... But you're an idiot. I mean, that's, that's sort of the response you have. And I think I just wanted to share with people the, the, the I think that the, the moral behind uh, Jeff's uh, story there is uh, offer to fix something on Mises and you get complete backdoor access. And I think that's, you know, so if you're a hacker, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> that's the handout passwords like candy. In a site, yeah. We're yeah, running okay, a site. Yeah, it works, it works. I myself had, had a... Uh, I've had a history in my life of being uh, more confrontational than I certainly feel uh, at the moment. And uh, I think, you know, part of that has to do with just mellowing out when you sort of get older. But I also think that since I've consistently put forward the idea that uh, true progress from a, particularly from a moral standpoint, which is really what we're talking about, basically, it's not the efficiency of the free market, it's the virtue of property and the non-aggression principle that fundamentally, I think, motivates most libertarians. If it is a multi-generational process to really change this, then, you know, upfront in your face confrontation is, I think, less productive than I may have thought of in the past. So I just want to share that something I'm sort of mulling over. It's, it's an interesting thing. I, I mean, you might be right. A lot of it is, has to do with personal style. I mean, in my own book, uh, some people have said that they really like my book because it doesn't do this kind of confrontation. It's not, it's not this kind of in your face, you know, taxation is theft again and again, you know, but, but rather is more, more anecdotal and it's, I, you know, it's funny. I, I'm told, you know, I don't know. I, People have different rhetorical talents and skills. Uh, you know, I, I wrote an article in, in uh, that book about Mises had a different style from Hayek, who had a different style from Rothbard, who had a different style from Rand. So maybe it, maybe it takes all different kinds. Mm -hmm. um, but let me, let me tell you, uh, Stefan, something else uh, interesting that happened um, recently. I had the occasion to interview at great length uh, a, uh, an Islamic scholar, a Muslim, who uh, is a real expert on the history of uh, Islamic attitudes towards trade and um, 
I was very intrigued by this interview because uh, you know Americans seem to have uh, problems nowadays with 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 Muslims and we uh, the, the new communists you know this new Cold War you know is going on and I enjoyed talking to him at great length because you know he's obviously against fundamentalism and he's for a kind of uh, Islamic uh, liberalism as we you and I might call it and we talked at length about this period between the year uh, 740 and about 1540 in Spain when Jews and Christians mm. and Muslims and even Buddhists lived all side by side and uh, they uh, shared cultures with each other uh, the Jews brought the, 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 a sense of a devotion to scholarship and, and uh, merchant craft and Islam brought uh, then the greatest technology in the world and also all the writings of the ancient philosophers all of which the Christians had somehow mysteriously misplaced and uh, the Christians brought a kind of moral discipline you know and these kind of forces all came together to build uh, what was um, in the 12th century and the 13th century, the most prosperous cities in the whole world. Sorry to interrupt just for one second because this is a thesis I have consistently, which is that, of course, they had the recent experience of the Roman Empire, which meant that's not centralized power at all, right? So they wanted to keep away from that. And so you get this incredible liberalization, this division of labor, which is to some degree cultural and religious. So you get this amazing explosion of productivity. And what is that used to fuel? Just as it was used to fuel in England and just as it was used to fuel in, um, uh, in, in the United States, it's used to fuel empire. This is the great tragedy of having a growing free market while you still have a government is the government will just feast on those goodies and use it to control more and more people usually overseas. Okay. End of thesis. Sorry. Please go on with your story. First person who brought that point up to me was Hans Hoppe. And it's a terrifying one. Yeah, the more prosperous society is, the more prosperous the government gets, and the more it fuels the empire. It's, it's terrible. But I, anyway, I enjoy talking to him about this because it, it helps you imagine what our future could be like. You know, different peoples borrowing from each other, learning from each other, and cooperating and sharing and creating great trading relationships that build uh, beautiful civilizations. Um, but it's the important thing is the human contact, or just I should say the contact, the opportunity to gain from association with each other. So, the more we can create opportunities for this all around the world, the, the greater the chances of peace and prosperity really are. Well, hating abstractions is depressingly easy, but hating actual human beings is, except for a very few very disturbed people, is very hard. So the more we can do face-to-face -face contact, I think the harder it will be to maintain all these, these ancient fears and hatreds and superstitions about the other. So I think that what you're doing is... is and it's true, it's true in, in, even in a religious sense, um, because... Um, Ron Paul's new book actually uh, has has a very interesting chapter on religious tolerance, and he he marches through all the moral systems of all the main world religions and points out that they're almost identical, and it's just basically the natural law, and that the religious wars are are come about because of mostly because of the state, but also because of uh, uh, tiny points of doctrine that somehow have an exaggerated place in people's minds that don't, don't actually matter, but that the moral systems of all the world religions are more or less more or less the same. I mean, it comes down to the things we talked about don't steal don't kill have respect for others and and the more people can associate with each other the more they can learn from each other and begin to appreciate all the ways in which we really share so much in common right. well listen I've, I've taken up an enormous chunk of your afternoon and i of course fully understand that you need to keep pounding back some more martinis before the drive home uh, and hand out some more passwords to strangers in australia um, but uh, thank you so much for your time. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure. I'm glad we had a chance to do it again. Uh, the audio quality is, of course, much, much better here. And uh, have yourself a, a wonderful weekend. 
Stefan, thank you so much, and thank you for all that you do, and I hope that we get a chance to do this again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.